Hello, good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views, reviews, and, you know, stuff. And if you think this opening is perhaps a little more subdued than normal, that's because we're getting off to a sombre start, really. Um, it's been a while since, since we've done an In Memoriam, but um, sadly... One is due, and it's one that has kicked off Okay, um, I debated about how to do this, and in the end I thought I'd just be straight up front The very short little opening you have just heard was recorded at the beginning of this week, if you're listening to this the day it drops on the 15th of June. I'm recording this on the 14th of June because there's breaking news. And normally what I do with breaking news is stick it in in a special section at the end of the show because that all feels nice and linear and everything fits and you know, that it, 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 it's all neat. But this isn't neat. Um, and this is breaking news that deserves to be at the beginning of the show. And given the nature of the next segment, uh, I, I debated about this as well. But in the end, although one person is not more important than another person in the grand scheme of things, in the history of a particular subject, one person can be more important than many if not most. And that's what we have here. It was reported today, Wednesday, the 14th of June 2023, that comics artist John Romita, better known perhaps these days as John Romita Sr., given that his son, John Romita Jr., is also a well-respected comics artist, John Romita Sr. has died at the age of uh, 93. Now, 93 is an old age. I mean, it, it, you know, this is not the death of a young man. It's not a tragedy uh, in that sense. What it is, I think, when an old person leaves us is a time to look back at the impact that person has had. And the impact of John Romita on comics is almost incalculable. He is, to modern comics, what Elvis is to rock and roll, what Martin Scorsese is to movies, what Laurence Olivier is to acting. He wasn't the first. He didn't found anything. He didn't create the modern comic, except he kind of did, because he came into Marvel Comics, Spider-Man in particular, not just Spider-Man, but Spider-Man in particular. And although he didn't invent Spider-Man, he wasn't a co-creator of Spider-Man, he, in the way that, that Elvis didn't invent rock and roll, but having come into Spider-Man, John Romita defined what Spider-Man would be, what the look and the aesthetic of Spider-Man would be for 
a generation and then some. And in doing so, he kind of defined the aesthetic of modern comics. It, I, I'm not an artist. I can't speak with huge authority on what, uh, you know, what his influence on the world of art has been. I can only speak from the point of view of a fan. And for, as, a, as a fan, the influence Ramita has had on Marvel Comics in particular, but comics in general, is just huge. So, John Ramita was one of five children. He was born in Brooklyn, the son of a baker. Um, he attended the Manhattan School of Industrial Art, graduating in 1947. Uh, he served in the U.S. Army uh, and was working in comics by the age of 19, uh, first getting published in Eastern Colors' Famous Funnies. For about 15 years, he split, split his time between the companies that would eventually evolve into Marvel and DC. Uh, that's Timely Comics, which became Marvel, and National Comics, which became DC. Uh, and he worked on a lot of titles, gaining a real reputation for his work in romance comics, which is a genre that we hardly see anymore. In 1966, uh, Ramita began working with Stan Lee on The Amazing Spider-Man. He took over from Steve Ditko, who had co-created um, the web the webcinema with Stan Lee back in 1961, uh, before, uh, obviously, you know, and, and Ditko leaving in a, a bit of a huff with Lee is um, a subject for another time, I think, the relationship between Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. But Steve Ditko left one heck of a hole at Spider-Man, and he left huge shoes to fill, which John Romita just slipped comfortably into. It was Romita's run on Spider-Man, which saw the introduction of some of the, the most important characters in modern Spider-Man lore. Uh, Mary Jane Watson, who became Mary Jane Watson Parker, who just became MJ, uh, was introduced in this run, as was Kingpin. Uh, it was during this time that Spider-Man became Marvel's top seller, overtaking the Fantastic Four. And it was during Ramita's time as artist on Spider-Man that the Spider-Man face became the logo of Marvel. It became the face of the company. In 1972, uh, Ramita became kind of the unofficial art director at Marvel. Uh, this was actually made official in 1973, but I think he, it's fair to say he was in that role from 1972. And as such, he contributed to the design of a number of characters, including, but not limited to, Luke Cage, The Punisher and Wolverine. Uh, and a group of artists who were working in-house and were used to um, touch stuff up, uh, replace pages that for whatever reason didn't make the cut, um, correct errors and stuff, uh, often uncredited, uh, but collectively known as Ramita's Raiders. And, you know, that group, too, had a, a huge influence on the way Marvel was to develop. He was director of art at Marvel for more than 20 years, while at the same time still working on the art for a number of titles, uh, including 
1987's The Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 21, which I am proud to have in my personal collection, uh, in which Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson finally get married. Uh, and I can't, I cannot tell you what an important issue that was. It defined Spider-Man to me. And for quite a lot of people in my generation, I was a teenager when that happened. And for me, the perfect version of Spider-Man is that Spider-Man. It's it's the way that Spider-Man looks. It's that relationship with that version of Mary Jane. Uh, and that's the Spider-Man I want to still be reading about, which is why I'm kind of miffed that I'm not. But anyway, John Romita left Marvel in any kind of official capacity back in 1996 and went into... In heavy air quotes, retirement, um, which turns out to have been a really stupid name for it because it was one of his, the most productive eras of his career. Uh, his output was huge. Many, many, many Spider-Man related projects uh, post-1996 for Amita, uh, as well as uh, doing covers for Superman, which is the first time he'd worked for, half, for, for DC in, in more than 50 years. Romita would often note that he wished he'd been born earlier so that he could have been in that first generation of comic book artists, you know, with the Kirby's and the Eisner's. But he took pride in building on what others had done. In an interview in 2002, he said, no matter what success I've had, I've always considered myself a guy who can improve on somebody else's concepts. A writer and another artist can create something and I can make it better. From almost any other comics artist, that would sound like impossible hubris. From John Romita, it's just a clear-headed statement of fact. Romita leaves his wife, Virginia, and two sons, Victor and John Romita Jr. He also leaves an incredible legacy. He touched the lives of generations of comics fans. And he will be remembered fondly by the likes of me. Obviously, our sincere condolences go to Mr. Romita's family and his friends, of whom he had many. Rest in peace, sir. May your drawing board be ever uncluttered, and your pen never want the ink. Okay, so that's a little insert that we just dropped in, literally, this afternoon. Uh, we now return you to our previously scheduled programming, which I regret isn't really a huge amount more cheerful. Some rather sober reflections amongst the comics community, about which more later. But first, this edition of Geeking with Destination Venus is dedicated to the memory of Ian McGinty, uh, a man whose work I was not particularly familiar with, but whose work was very, very well loved. Um, he's probably best known for his work on uh, franchises such as Adventure Time and Invader Zim. Uh, his 
death was announced on social media by his family. Uh, his mother wrote that he will be deeply missed and will leave a hole in our hearts forever. Friends and collaborators have been very quick to pay their tributes. I say this every time I do one of these. You can tell a person's worth by how people speak of them. And the outpouring of love and loss at the death of Ian McGinty has been profound and overwhelming. He was only 38 years old, which is, frankly, no age at all. And although his family have not announced uh, the cause of death, um, I think it's, it's not difficult to read between the lines of the things that people who knew him have said. And I don't want to say any more about that because I don't want to disrespect the, the wishes of the family who clearly don't want to go into details, so I shan't. He, he leaves a legacy, a profound legacy. Um, Adventure Time, Invader Zim, uh, Be and the Puppy Cat, Munchkin, Bravest Warriors. He's worked on huge fan favourite IPs. Uh, he was working on an animated pilot of his own IP uh, called Welcome to Showside, um, which it seems had hit a bit of a brick wall in development and was not going to proceed further. That's a pity, because he was a very, very talented creator, and uh, he's clearly going to be missed. So we'll move on from there and actually take a look at the reaction that his passing has caused, because it has not just led to an outpouring of grief and sympathy and love on the various social medias, it's also led to a hashtag. I'm not quite sure who started it, but it's really snowballed. The hashtag is Comics Broke Me. And some of the stories that people are sharing, some of whom are, you know, well, insofar as there are big names in comics, some of whom are big names. People that, you know, at least people in comics will have heard of. People who are regarded very strongly as successors, as, you know, the big names, the players, the people who have succeeded in comics. And it's sobering, actually. I mean, I, I've been involved in comics for a long time now. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, a creator. I've, I've, I've written some, none that I've ever seen print. But I have friends who make their living in the comics world. And I have other friends who have been making comics their entire adult life and who have never actually made enough money to give up the day job or even to contemplate giving up the day job. And I know, I know from talking to them, I know from my own interactions with publishers, it is a very hard world to make a living in. And you always hear stories. You know, you always hear, you know, that odd story about someone being exploited, of a publisher who's taken advantage of them, of a publisher who's kind of led a creator, a writer or an artist 
down the garden path a little bit and and maybe gotten to generate some stuff without being paid and then taken that stuff and there's been no work, no paid work to come out of it. And you hear them and you think, oh man, that sucks. That's really bad luck. And then you read the hashtag comics broke me and you realize that luck has nothing to do with it and that that's just how the industry works. It's not the odd one off story that people have about that kind of thing. It's common. Absolutely common. I'm, I'm not going to repeat any of the stories that have been on that hashtag. You can go on Twitter and look for the hashtag yourself if you have a mind. I'm not going to tell the stories because they're not my stories to tell. But they are stories from people that I know. As a couple from people that I regard as friends of mine. That I was unaware of until now. Not because my friends don't talk to me. But because what happened didn't actually seem comment worthy to them. So common was it. And that that puts me into a dilemma. I am involved in comics in a couple of ways. I'm sort of on the periphery of promoting comics and comics events. I am a retailer. I sell comics. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to kid anybody that I do that for a living, but I I do that as my apparently primary job. And I've been hanging around comics creators for a very, very long time because I'm also a fan. I'm a reader. I love comics. Comics are the most important thing in my life outside of family. And as a fan and as a retailer, I have been muttering for years now that comics are too expensive. Because they are. I mean, comics are not cheap. They're approaching not even being affordable to a lot of people. If you come into Destie's for an average, regular American single issue comic, the vast majority of them are going to be £3.50 if you ordered them in advance. If you didn't, they're going to be £3.75. And that's the baseline. Some of them are more expensive than that. Now, that's a long way from when I started reading comics, when in the late 80s, they were 50p. A brand new American comic would be 50 pence. If you take our lower price of 350, that is a 300% increase in 30 years. 300%. Seems a lot. Seems an awful lot. More than that. In Yorkshire in the Humber, according to a, a statistic I looked up online, so your mileage may vary here, but in Yorkshire in the Humber, the average pocket money for a teenager is between six and seven pounds a week. That means a comic, a single issue of a comic, that's half your pocket money gone. Now, from my point of view, that does not make young people more likely to pick up a comic, does it? They've got so many other things they could be spending their money on. So, you know, my argument for some time has been comics are too expensive. They ought to be cheaper. Well, that's brilliant and fine and dandy and wonderful from my point of view. But I also have to recognise that quite a lot of the certainly the smaller publishers are really struggling 
in the economic situation they find themselves in. You know, I, I've reported on a couple of the smaller publishers that are really struggling. Um, you know, Aftershock has uh, had to file for bankruptcy protection in the US for that reason. And then reading this hashtag, comics broke me. You see so many people, talented people with real skills in art and writing who are owed thousands in unpaid invoices from publishers they've done freelance work for. In some cases, work that has been published that they still have not been paid for. That's terrible and it's not sustainable. And if the publishers can't afford to pay the people who are making the comics, the people who are doing the work, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe comics are not too expensive. Maybe we should, in fact, be paying more. Now, is that sustainable? Is Would the market support that? I don't know. But clearly, the situation we are currently in is no good. Like so many of the creative industries, the people who make the stuff are easier to exploit than people in other industries because writers write. That's what they do. Writers want to write. They need to write. They're going to write. Artists want to draw. They want to make art. They're going to do it whether you pay them or not. And they want people to see what they've done. So they will put up with nonsense from publishers like late payments, like non-payment, like derisory low, insultingly low page rates. They will put up with that because they want to make the thing. What is becoming clear is that many publishers have exploited this and have become increasingly exploitative. The exploitation has become built into their business model. And if that doesn't change, then people are just going to burn out. And then we have no comics at all. Now, I don't know what the answer here is. I am a fan and a retailer. I don't know how we can turn this around. But I do know that we have to. I love comics. I love to read comics. They matter, as I said, to me, a ridiculous amount. But I am not interested in pursuing my passion at the expense of other people's lives. It's not. I love comics. I don't love them that much. So what do we do? It has been suggested that comics writers and artists of all kinds, inkers, colorists, pencilers, the whole shebang, should form themselves a union like the Screen Actors Guild or the Writers Guild of America and band together in solidarity to put their case to the publishers. That could work. It could. But I think attitudes in the industry are so entrenched that I don't know that that would work quickly. And I don't know that it would do any good quickly enough. So I don't know what we do about this. I, I, it's, it, the future here is unclear. But 
something must be done. Don't know what. But just as a closing thought, and, and yeah, just to round off what appears to have become the boring preachy part, is comics not unique in this. I mean, we're seeing that this is happening with film and TV, the the, the Screen Actors Guild, the the Writers Guild of America. You know, they are fighting the same fight. They are experiencing the same difficulties. And yeah, we can just give up and throw it all in and say to hell with this, let AI create everything. But that would be a very dull future indeed. It is clear that as a culture, as a society, we need to value the people who do the creative work much more than we do. We need to start recognising that it is work. It is a job. And when people do a job, they have every right to expect not only that they get paid a fair wage for it, but that they will be treated with respect as professionals in their field. I don't think that's too much to ask. Whether they are the writers for, for the TV and movie shows that we love, whether they are writing comics, whether they are drawing comics, whether they are doing the special effects on the movies that we love, whether they're designing the action figures or writing the novels, whatever it is that we geeks love, the people who make that stuff deserve to be respected and treated like people. Here endeth the boring preachy part. Let's move on to something a little bit more positive. So, staying with geeky news and actually going for geeky news that I am pleased to hear, let's turn our attention to the DC movie universe, whatever we're calling it now. I'm fairly sure they're going to drop the DC extended universe tag because that was so associated with the Snyderverse. And also, it's just really clumsy. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU, that kind of trips off the tongue a little bit. The DC Extended Universe, that's not just hard to say in its full thing, but DCEU also doesn't exactly slip off the tongue. So anyway, sure they're going to change it, whatever we're calling it. There's a policy that they've put in place, which I will be honest, I was unaware of until this new story broke. Apparently it's a, it's a fairly long-standing policy, which has in and of itself raised some concern amongst a section of the acting community. Basically, what James Gunn has said is that, as far as he is concerned, when there is animation in the DC movie universe, the voice work for a character will be done by the person who portrays that character in live action. So what that means is if they did a Batman animation, for example, then the voice of Batman would be whoever plays Batman in live action, which I grant you at the moment, <laughs> that's a fairly wide field. What are we talking? Affleck, Pattinson, Keaton? But you get the idea. Now, that's something that we've seen already in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, the animations for What If, for instance, uh, the What If Black Panther Became Star-Lord? What if uh, Peggy Carter picked up the shield? The voices in those animations for Marvel were done by the live-action actors. So, weirdly, that means What If the Black Panther Became Star-Lord 
was actually Chadwick Boseman's last work for Marvel on screen, which is an odd thing. But, you know, and I, I, as a viewer, I find that particularly cool. And a lot of people who don't sort of spend their time worrying about this stuff perhaps just simply always assumed that that's how it worked. It did, in fact, it, it isn't. Normally what has happened in the past is that when there's been an animated version of a thing, it's actually been quite unusual for the people who do the live action voices to to do the voices for the animation. I mean, there is history here. Uh, some, not all, some of the original Star Trek cast voiced the animated series of Star Trek. Um, I think Adam West and Burt Ward voiced the Batman animated series back in the 70s. But generally speaking, you've hired professional voice actors to do voice work. So, you know, you need Batman in an animated thing. You're not going to pay for Michael Keaton. He's expensive. No one's going to see him. You just get someone to do the voice. And voice acting is, in any case, a different skill. Performing a character in audio only is not something that all actors can do. So there is a, a quite a big voice acting community. And for those people for whom voice acting is their living, the announcement that, well, you guys aren't going to get any work on this has been concerning. And that concern has been heightened by the fear that what would actually happen is that rather than get Chris Hemsworth in to voice for Thor or Robert Downey Jr. in to voice Iron Man, rather than do that, rather than pay the immense amounts of money that would cost, what you actually do is, or what the studios might do, is just come to a licensing agreement with the aforementioned actors, or the, you know, whichever actors are in question, to use their voice likeness and then get AI to do it. Because certainly AI is becoming capable of doing this. I heard an experiment on the podcast Skeptics Guide to the Universe a couple of weeks ago where they actually trained an AI on the voice of the presenters of that show. And they got the presenters to say a thing, and then they got an AI to say the same thing in the voice of the presenter. And you could tell the difference if you put them side by side. But in isolation, it sounded fine. And, you know, there's been some fairly justifiable concern amongst the voice acting community that that might be what happens here. After all, it is not without precedent. James Earl Jones has come to an agreement with Lucasfilm for an AI-generated version of his voice to be used for Darth Vader in the future. So, you know, there's nothing technologically to stop people doing that. James Gunn, however, has come out and been very unequivocal and said, heck no, when I say the live-action actors will do the voice work for any animated use of that character, I mean the live-action actor will do that voiceover. Not, I will program an AI, an AI with that actor's voice, but the live-action actor will do that work. Which I'm pleased about. Because, as, as I keep saying, I am not against AI in principle. I can see lots of applications 
where AI might work. And I will come to a correction about AI in a little bit, actually. But in specific cases, and I think creativity and acting is one of those cases, I actually don't think AI has any place. I think for all kinds of reasons, I want to keep actual humans actually involved. Now, we may come back to why this is important later, because there are going to be further advances in the AI field. So I think we'll talk about those then. But anyway, that's news about the DC cinematic film, whatever universe, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what else is happening in the world of news? Well, not that much is going on in the world of film and TV because, of course, the Writers Guild of America strike and the Screen Actors Guild strike are now ongoing and perhaps have had a negative consequence on fandom in a way that I had not foreseen. If you pay attention to social media in a way that I no longer do, you may have seen that there has been a major spoiler, a massive leak regarding the plot and occurrences in the forthcoming Good Omens Season 2. Now, I know that there has been a leak. I know that there has been a massive spoiler released. I'm pleased to say I don't know what the spoiler is. I have managed to avoid it. This is because I no longer pay that much attention to social media. However, it's out there. Uh, I am now taking active steps to make sure I don't see it. You'll certainly not get any such spoilers from me on this show. But how is it out there? Well, Neil Gaiman has taken to social media. And again, thank you to Bleeding Cool for this, because I had not seen this until I went looking for it. Neil Gaiman has taken to social media to say that, yeah, he's aware that the spoiler is out there. He's sorry about it. It's got nothing to do with him. As far as he can tell, it came from Amazon Prime itself. And he's miffed because he thinks the people involved at Amazon Prime should have known better. Now, how did this get past him? Well, it's very simple. He's not paying attention. He's on strike. Now, I have spoken already about how, because the writers are on strike, things that happen on live action sets can no longer happen. All kinds of ad-libbing and dealing with stuff just can't be done under all the agreements if there's no writer on set. So a lot of production has been slowed down. What hadn't occurred to me is that because the writers are on strike, people like Neil Gaiman are not at work and not, therefore, involved in the promotion of things that are finished but aren't out yet in the way they normally would be. So normally, Neil Gaiman would be watching everything that went out about Good Omen Season 2, like the proverbial hawk, precisely so that things like this don't happen. He's not doing that right now. He's on strike. He's on the picket. He's not turning up for work. That's what strike means. So things like this, he's not there to pick up on. And so they're going to happen, I'm afraid. Now, he says that the people involved at Amazon Prime should know better, and perhaps they should. But this is a consequence of not being at your post. And as somebody who supports the strike, I have to accept that this is a consequence that people like me who don't want spoilers but do support the strike are going to have to face. You know, the whole point of a strike is that it's disruptive, and the whole point of a strike is that it's inconvenient, and the whole point of a strike is that everybody sees 
well, these are the negative things that happen when these people aren't at work. We should probably re recompense them for being there. That's the point. So there, will there be more negative consequences like this? Yes. Are they worth it? Heck yes. In the grand scheme of things, does the fact that there's been a spoiler for a thing on the telly really matter? Nah. Nah, it doesn't. Not really. Not as much as people being able to live and make a, you know, make a living from the, the work that they do. Nah, it doesn't matter at all, really. And now I'm in danger of drifting back into the boring preachy part. I keep doing that these days. So we will move swiftly on and take a look at what's been happening out there in... Okay, first up, in space news. Yes, it's happened again for the second time. Actual real-life astronomers are able to make Star Wars references in their press releases. Because a new, and I'm quoting now, a new Tatooine-like exoplanet has been discovered orbiting twin suns. Now, I need to caveat this straight away. Not just as an astronomer, but as a geek. Okay, as a hobby astronomer... I have to tell you that really, come on, just because it's a planet in a binary star system doesn't mean it's like Tatooine, for goodness sake. And as a geek, I have to tell you, we don't know that. Tatooine-like suggests desert, a burning sandy cinder of a planet, the kind of place that Darth Vader does not like. I regret to say that we currently have no information. In this regard, we don't know. It could be tattooing like, it could be more endor like, it could be shrouded in thick, dense forest. Or perhaps it could be like Coruscant. Maybe it's full of intelligent life forms going about their bureaucratic business. Or maybe it's none of these things because it's an exoplanet. We don't know. We've got no information about what is going on on the surface of this planet whatsoever. All we know is that, well, we know two things, actually. Uh, we know that it is a planet in a system with two stars. And, you know, that's pretty cool. The other thing we know is that it's got a really cool name. I mean, a really cool name. The previous planet in a binary system was given the name Kepler-16b and was discovered in 2011 by the Kepler Space Telescope. That's how these things generally get their names. Um, this one isn't called that. This one is called Bebop1C, and I really rather like that. Planet Bebop. That's so cool. I now like to think of it as a planet populated entirely by jazz musicians. But while the language of jazz is, I have no doubt, universal, there probably is slightly more to it. Than that. So what is going on with Planet Bebop? Well, I'm glad you asked. And look, I take the mickey because it's what I do, but actually this is fascinating. Um, binary stars are obviously stars where you have two stars orbiting. Well, generally speaking, people say they're orbiting each other. They are not. They are orbiting their joint centre of gravity in exactly the same way that we don't actually orbit the sun. We orbit a point in space which happens to be inside the sun because it's the centre of... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, point 
is that circumbinary planets, that is to say, planets orbiting binary stars, were thought not to exist. And the reason they were thought not to exist was it was postulated that binary stars would mix up the dust that surrounds the space around them, and therefore you wouldn't get a, a planet-forming disk of dust and stuff for planets to form within. Because the idea of planet formation is that you have a star, and it has huge gravity, and so it accumulates a disk of dust around it, and the dust then sort of coagulates. Um, you know, gravity means that big things attract smaller things, and eventually that dust will coagulate into planets. That's been the general theory. And the idea is that, you know, you've got a star orbiting another star, that that disk is constantly being churned up, and therefore nothing can coagulate. I'm now trying to think of a comparison, and I can't. There, there, is, there is clearly going to be a really obvious allegory to illustrate this, and I can't think of one. Sorry. Um, but this changed when Kepler-16b was discovered in 2011 by the brilliant but now defunct Kepler Space Telescope. And obviously, where you found one example of something in something as big as, you know, space... If there's one, there's probably others. But it's one thing to theorise that a thing might exist, quite another to actually have a look at it. And so, you know, astronomers have been looking at binary stars, specifically the binary system. <sighs> oh, what is it with astronomers and these names? OK, they've been looking at a binary system that they could have called anything. They could have called it something cool, but they didn't. They called it TOI-1338. For goodness sake. <sighs> anyway, they've been looking at TOI-1338, uh, which is about 1,320 light years from Earth in the constellation of Pictor. Now, I don't know where that is either. I'm going to do now because I looked on a, on a star map. There would be links in the show notes, but I haven't done any show notes. So Google it. And these observations have been successful. There were indications in 2020 that there was going to be a circumbinary planet there, uh, dubbed TOI-1338b. Uh, Seriously, you could have called it anything. Anything they could have called it. Uh, this was located by the TESS Space Telescope. Um, so then they had another look using the European Southern Observatory and the Very Large Telescope. Yes, yes, they actually called a telescope the Very Large Telescope. And yes, it's very large. Yes, they are that literal. This is how we get stars called TOI-1338. <sighs> anyway, the VLT, I'm not going to call it the Very Large Telescope again, the VLT, uh, Located uh, alongside the European Southern Observatory in the Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, tried to pinpoint the mass of this probable planet TOI-1338b. Despite their best effort, they couldn't do it. Instead, they found another planet! Uh, now, we now know of about 15 circumbinary planets out of over 5,200 exoplanets that have been discovered so far. And now... That number of 5,200, that's out of date. The reason I know it's out of date is because I am reading 
from notes that were taken from an article that was published at the beginning of the week. We are discovering exoplanets at a rate now that if there were 5,200 known at the beginning of the week, there's more now. So, you know, 15 out of that many, again. My mathematics is not good enough to be able to just out, out of my head now figure out what percentage that is. And I didn't think to do it when I wrote the script because, yeah, there is a script. I know. Uh, but it's not many. It's a very small percentage is what I'm saying. So they've called the newfound world Bebop 1C after the name of the project, uh, which is called Project Bebop, which I like. I like to think of um, all of these astronomers sitting around on very high bar stools, clicking their fingers and kind of going. Yeah, a lot. Um, it actually is an acronym because, of course, it's an acronym. If astronomers ever come up with a name for anything, it's always an acronym. Uh, and the Bebop Project is called the Bebop Project because it stands for Binaries Escorted by Orbiting Planets. <sighs> I know, I know. Although, to be fair, uh, they also refer to the binary system TOI-1338 as Bebop-1, which is cooler. So if this was Star Wars, we could now talk about the Bebop system, which is cool. Now, Bebop-1C is not in any way like Tatooine, apart from the fact that he's got two sons. Uh, it's a gas giant for a start, which means no solid surface. Uh, and it is about 65 times the mass of Earth, which is about a 20 about 20% the size of Jupiter. Or at least 20% the mass of Jupiter. Mass and size are not the same thing, but you, you know what I mean. Uh, it's orbiting at a distance of about, because we can't be completely precise with these things, about 79% of an astronomical unit, uh, which is to say... Uh, it's about 79% of the distance away from the sun that we are. One astro astronomical unit is defined as the average distance between the Earth and the sun. Uh, and Bebop-1c uh, has a year of about 215 Earth days. That's kind of cool. Its partner, TOI-1338b, or Bebop-1b, is closer to its stars than that and has a year of about 95 days. Uh, now, that's got an, um, a mass of about 22 times the size of Earth, which is, um, you know, smaller than Bebop-1c. But we don't really know very much more about that. So this is cool. What's even cooler is that a high school student, whose name I do not have in my script, sorry, uh, but a high school student, nevertheless, was involved in discovering the system. I'm, I'm just going to keep calling it the Bebop system now. Uh, but they were involved in a project which was using the TESS Space Tele Telescope, or had access to the TESS Space Telescope, helped discover uh, planet Bebop 1b because they, they, you know, they were involved in spotting the way it blocked light from its suns as it passed in front of them or transited if you want to use the astronomical term. So that's cool. Also cool, um, the reason this matters so much, is that we are now seeing things from Earth with Earth-based telescopes that previously have been the province of space-based telescopes like Kepler, which is cool 
because while space telescopes like Kepler and Hubble and the JWST, while that's all great and fine and dandy and lovely and, and they produce amazing stuff, they are hellishly expensive and they have limited lifespans. Whereas stuff on Earth, you can just keep upgrading. So if we can do this science from the surface of the planet, that is going to save us a huge amount of money. Which means we're going to get a lot more science done. We're going to learn a lot more. And that really, in the end, is what matters. OK, I was going to do a bunch of other space news this week, but we are going to have to move on because um, we are rapidly running out of time. So we'll leave space there, but you can expect a bumper episode of space at some point in the next few weeks because there is loads of stuff that I need to catch up on. But for now, we will leave it right there. Have I mentioned lately how much I love that jingle? I really like that jingle. Anyway, moving on, moving on, moving on. It's been a busy week, and I have not had a chance to read the many great new comics that have landed this week. But I have had a chance to read a book that has arrived. I know, I read a book. Oh, all right, it's a comic. But it's a big comic. I'm speaking, of course, of the excellent Glass Half Empty by the equally amazing Rachel Smith. Now, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that Rachel Smith is a friend of the show. She's been on the show. Uh, maybe not since it became this version of itself, but she was certainly on Geeks at the Gates back, back in the day. If you were following the Daily Waffle back during lockdown, uh, you will remember that many, many times I pointed you in the direction of Rachel's Quarantine Comics, which were a series of autobiographical strips she did every day during the first lockdown. No full disclosure, I've known Rachel Smith for a long time now. She was the first independent creator that got in touch with me when I first took over Destination Venus way back in 2016. One of the first things I did when I took over the shop was just get on Twitter back in the days when Twitter was a good thing and ask, you know, if you are an independent self-publishing creator, get in touch. I want to stock your stuff. Rachel was one of the first people to do that. And uh, that introduced me to Wired Up Wrong, a fabulous autobiographical comic in which she explored her experience of living with anxiety and depression. That, amongst other books, I mean, these are not the only things she's done by any means, but sort of a direct successor to Wired Up Wrong was Stand In Your Power, which looked at Rachel's life, or in, which Rachel used to look at her own life, after the breakup of the relationship, which had been a, uh, a big part of Wired Up Wrong, and her kind of exploration of the future. In many ways, I suppose Quarantine Comics was a direct successor to that, in that it was a vehicle through which Rachel talked about her life in the time subsequent to the events of Stand In Your Power. And I guess coming next in that sequence is Glass Half Empty. Uh, it's an incredible piece of work. One of the things I've always loved about Rachel Smith's work 
is that it is so incredibly straightforwardly unselfconsciously honest i i speak as a person who has a tendency on occasion just on occasion to mildly overshare things uh, i'm less bad at that than i used to be uh if you had ever followed me on social media sort of 10 years or so ago i was i was a nightmare on social media for oversharing i really was and one of the criticisms that were leveled at me by well-meaning friends at that time was that there was something performative about that i was oversharing in a look at me look at how outraged i am about this outrageous thing kind of way and I think that's one of the reasons I've toned it down in recent years. I've kind of realised that, yeah, it was it was just weirdly showing off in a not impressive way. That's not what Rachel Smith is doing. There is also a, a, a danger that autobiographical work can tip into that. Um, but Rachel never does, I don't think. And the fact that she can be as open and honest as she is without ever being performative or coming across as somebody who was just wanting attention is a real tribute to her storytelling abilities. So what is Glass Half Empty? Well, this is a book in which Rachel explores her relationship with her father. From the age of 10, uh, Rachel Smith was going to group meetings to help her cope with her father's issues with alcohol. Her father um, was an alcoholic. I, th I think we need to be upfront and use the words. And he died young. And so he died when she was still fairly young. I think she was at university when he died. And... Over the years since then, partly sort of trying to process the grief that she was feeling, the emotion that she was experiencing, she began to develop her own problematic relationship with alcohol. And don't we all, actually? I mean, I, I speak as somebody who was a full-grown adult when uh, I lost my dad. And I'm not going to lie, I may have um, consumed rather more wine than I should have when I was processing all of that. And it's that relationship with alcohol and her father and herself that this book focuses on. And it's it's truly amazing. Uh, Paul Cornell, the great comics and fantasy writer uh, and friend indeed of this show. He was on um, ooh, back in what? 2019 2020 something like that so it might again it might have been geeks at the gates when he was on but anyway he's been on um he has given a a back cover quote uh, which i completely agree with and he says it better than i could so i'm just going to quote what paul cornell says about what uh glass half empty he says it's raw real deal stuff this is smith set free the book she was always going to create magnificent and i couldn't agree more it's it's relatable. It's painfully honest, but it's also very funny. Nobody writes about mental health better, I think, than Rachel Smith. She 
never makes it preachy. I could learn a few lessons from her. She never makes it, oh, poor me. Oh, this is awful. She never, And it's really hard to write about depression and not do that. And she doesn't do that. She is always quite upbeat in her tone, even when she's dealing with seriously dark stuff. And there's a warmth in her work, in her writing and in her art. Um, honestly, reading a book by Rachel Smith, however dark it gets, however difficult the subject matter, reading a book by Rachel Smith is like a hug. It's There's comfort in it and understanding and compassion. It's it's an astonishing achievement. I love all of Rachel's work. Uh, I think this might be my favourite thing of hers that she's written. Although, as you may be beginning to uh, figure out for yourselves, that's a very high bar. I am a massive fan of Rachel Smith. But don't take my word for it. Just don't take my word for it. Trot on over to uh, Rachel's website. I think it's rachelsmith.com. I might be wrong. Just Google Rachel Smith comic artist and you'll get pointed in the right direction. Or, you know, we keep all her stuff in stock at Destiny's. You just come down and have a look and see for yourself the, the sheer, utter magnificence of Rachel's work. It's unbelievably engaging and unbelievably profound. And those are hard, hard things to mix. So that is... Glass Half Empty by Rachel Smith is published by Icon Books uh, and it is £12.99. Available in all good bookstores and probably some mediocre ones. Even mediocre bookstores will probably make the effort to have something this good in stock. And that really is just about all we have time for this week. A quick glance over at the Geek Community Notice Board shows me that I haven't written anything on it. There's stuff happening. Uh, I'm going to point you in the general direction of Geek Retreat and the Geek Pub Quiz. You can also check out, I, I keep meaning to mention this, and um, thank you Andy Backhouse for reminding me. If you are based in Harrogate, this show is not the only place online to find out about stuff that's going on. Harrogate Community Radio itself has its own community notice board, where you will find all kinds of events and stuff. Not just geeky stuff either. It's quite cosmopolitan and broad in that sense, much broader than we are. So check that out as well. If you go to um, harrogatecommunityradio.online and uh, check out the events board, there's all kinds of stuff. And of course, you can also explore all the other great shows that are currently available on Harrogate Community Radio because there are loads. So do check that out. But that really is all we really have time for this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, hopefully we'll have another wonderful woman of science. We didn't have time to fit one in this week. We'll have more space news. We'll have some general science news with any look, because it's not like nothing's been going on. There's been loads. We just haven't had time to talk about it. We'll have comics reviews again, if I've had time to read any, and so on and so on. Um, oh, I should just say, I have finally seen Ant-Man Quantumania, and it's all right, actually. There you go. That's my review. Don't ask me about Flash or Spider-Verse, though, because I haven't had a chance to see either of those. So maybe by next week, maybe there'll be a review. There'll be something to look forward to. We'll see you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else and above all else. You stay geeky, folks. Take care.